Thank you for saying that. Yeah. Okay, we are rolling. My when I was uh, little, my bus driver to elementary school every day kept calling me Joey instead of Zoe, and I never corrected him the entire time. And so then, did other people pick up and call yeah, but, you Joey? No, everyone knew that he had it wrong. But <laughs> now I've since fifth grade, I've gotten over that fear, and I just tell yeah, but people you remember if, it now. They call me Zoe or that something. One or Joey. bus driver. Uh, What's funny, though, is like once you let something go, you start going, well, like, should I say something three weeks later or should I just let him think I'm Joey? So, all right, well, that's a good segue (laughs) into the start of not Joey Holderness. I'm here with Zoe Holderness, who is a co-founder and CTO of Slingshot. How are you doing, Zoe? I'm doing good. Thank you so much for having me, Spencer. It's fun to be here. Well, it's my pleasure. Thank you for for traveling down from San Francisco, of all places. I, I don't know. I haven't looked at the map yet. I've had people come in from like South Carolina and New York, so I don't know which one's technically farther. So you might be the farthest traveled in. Yet I'll have to I'll have to go look at a map. Hopefully, and, I've got the record. Well, hopefully you do. And again, I, I never want to uh, sort of diminish the effort to to get on a plane and come down uh, to come on a podcast. So thank you for that. You're here with your co-founder, who he, what, what, for now is like, where is he right now? He's Probably, working hard. He's working hard. <laughs> he's giving you the the fun stuff to do. But Zoe, so today we're going to talk about Slingshot, which you guys do bill audits, right? Medical bill audits. Mm-hmm. Um, but before we get into the technical stuff and learn all about your company and what you do, let's let's learn about you a bit. So. Give me some of your backstory, career, uh, you know, education history, where'd you grow up, all, all that fun stuff. Okay. Well, I grew up in Charlotte, North Carolina, uh, and then went to Georgia Tech, uh, studied mechanical engineering and computer science, and loved Atlanta, loved Georgia Tech, and ended up moving to California after college. Um, my first job was at Tesla. I was actually working at their factory in Fremont as a firmware uh, integration engineer. You educated me, by the way, what firmware is. Can yes. you explain that really quick? Because yes. insurance people probably don't know what firmware is. It's the low-level code that does everything from, you know, adjusting your seat when you do the little seat to make it move back and forth, um, to your lights, to your radio, all those kind of things. But so the kind of the, I'm going to call it the dumber processes, but the things you absolutely need not, to work. Not the self-driving yeah, part. Yeah, not the self-driving <laughs> part. But hey, if my light, if I flip this button, my lights need to come on because it's dark, right? Exactly. Okay, okay. So you're doing firmware for Tesla. Like, what's it like working at Tesla? Because a lot of people, like, that's their dream job, especially in tech or if they're in engineering. So experience, what, what was it like? Yeah, it, you work a lot. Okay. Um, and it's super fast-paced, which is really fun. Um, but also a bit stressful because you can like bring down the line. You have a lot of responsibility. Okay. Um, so you never you want to that? stop. You never want to stop cars from being built, yeah. which, you know, I definitely had my mess ups on occasion. Okay. Um, but yeah, really fast paced, a lot of work, not a lot of work life balance, I would say. So when um, you say a lot of work, like, do you have a ballpark number of where you work in 80 hours? Probably weeks? 60 hours a week. Okay. Um, the only person working harder was Elon, right? He's sleeping <laughs> on his couch in his oh, office. Oh, he's yeah. definitely working the hardest. Um, but it was really fun. But I ended up switching jobs and moving to Lyft after mm. a while, which was working on e-bikes. Okay. Uh, and I love riding my bike. Yeah. And so that was, for me, I know so many people are car people, um, but the bike for me was the dream. And so half of my job, I was testing the firmware on these bikes, was riding it around San Francisco. And so that's pretty cool. They would say, go ride it uphill and see if you can get the motor to stall out. Um, and so I was just taking bikes on rides. And then I was also like debugging the code. But Listen, so like, what is it, does it look like an actual bicycle or, you know, what's a little bit different in terms of the style of an e-bike? Yeah. So, I mean, it's a bike and then it has a motor on it and it has a cadence sensor. So as you pedal hard, faster and faster, 
um, that motor goes in faster and faster. You okay. can go up to like 30 miles an hour. I don't know if I'd want to be at 30 miles an hour on a bike, but like, are these kind of the next iteration of what you used to think? What were those, the bird ones that were like the scooters or whatever that yes. we saw in Austin a couple of years ago? Exactly. So it's okay. like the bike share bikes that you can take around. Okay. Um, and as a person who bikes pretty much everywhere they go, uh, it's perfect for me because you have transportation. When you kind of describe this, you, you tell me like as we were, uh, you know, getting prepared for the podcast, that it was somewhat of a dream job, right? So like, was it just the fact you were riding bikes or was it Lyft or what made it more of a dream job for you? One thing, well, bikes definitely was the uh, That was the lure. Yeah, 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 the lure, <laughs> the, the first thing. But what I really found was there was a lot of women um, and there's not a ton of women in engineering. Um, and Lyft had done a great job of making sure that their teams were diverse um, and that you had uh, women who could be mentors for you. Mm -hmm. So actually our head of electrical engineering was a woman. Um, and that was huge for me. That's something I didn't have at Tesla as much. And so I was really looking for. Okay. Um, so that was a great experience. That's awesome. And how long were you there at Lyft? So I was there for nine months um, and then actually got overcharged for a medical bill. Yeah. And so that was kind of what led me into starting Slingshot. Well, I love this, right? Because I've told you on a couple of occasions, we've had, I want to say a similar story, but there's always like this moment where it's like almost this transformational <laughs> moment in your hero's journey. Like life was normal. I was at Lyft and then I get this bill and all of a sudden yeah. like, oh, I get introduced to the healthcare system and wow, this, this stinks. So tell me about that experience because that was really the precursor to Slingshot, correct? Yes. Okay. So this was last February. I got overcharged for a gynecologist appointment. And I'm a pretty detail-oriented person. So just started, I requested an itemized bill. I started reviewing what these different CPT codes meant. Uh, and then I was like, you know, I just got to start trying stuff. So I called the billing office and requested an audit. Um, and I think it took me about four audits to get the actual phrasing right. Okay. Um, I kept requesting things that were not correct. Okay. <laughs> um, but on the fourth try, I finally got it. Well, I mean, it. this is your, to be fair, this is your first go around, right? Oh, I, yeah. I, I, myself, I have no, I have no idea what to do. I to, had to no start. idea what modifiers were or evaluation and management. Um, but the fourth try, I got my bill reduced. Okay. Uh, and I was actually in Lake Tahoe at the time with my co-founder, Pranal, uh, and he was watching me go through all this. And we just started talking about, like, is this something that happens to everyone? Um, and so we started taking on cases yeah. for our friends, and we were able to reduce their bills as well. And we were reducing their bills by about 30% on average. Okay. And it was a population that was aged 25 to 35. Um, everyone was generally healthy, and everyone had insurance through their employer. Mm -hmm. And we just thought, you know, if this population is having issues... Um, I can't imagine what's going on in the healthcare space for the rest of the country. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so that's what led us to like dive deep and actually research. You know, what are these issues with healthcare billing? So had Bernal had a similar experience himself, or was he just sort of like seeing it in your friends and helping helping out with that? So he'd actually fought um, an ambulance bill back in college. Okay. Um, he'd fallen off one of the bird scooters. <laughs> oh, um, yeah, no kidding. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's funny. Ironic. Yeah. Um, so he had actually gone through it before as well, and so. Then we just both were, you know, bothering our friends and saying, hey, can we negotiate your medical bill for you? Can we look over it for errors? They're like, sure, weirdo. Like, <laughs> yes, you can do that, as a matter of fact. So how common was it, though? Was you, were you seeing it in a lot of your friends having similar experiences? Yes. And then the other one was is that we saw um, some friends were able to negotiate their bill, right? If you call and you say, you know, I'll pay in full today, mm -hmm. um, you could get a discount. So that was something that was new to us, too. And I think as engineers, we wanted to figure out, you know, what are the rules of medical billing? Like to us as newcomers, it felt like there was no rules. Yeah. Um, but there's actually a ton of guidelines into how you bill for medical procedures. 
Uh, and I think that's the perfect implementation for software because um, you can create a great a rules based rules yeah. yeah yeah, yeah. so okay so like let's go back a little bit though like you were able to renegotiate your bill how much were you did you save yourself do you remember the the dollar amount I don't remember the dollar amount exactly but I think it came out to about forty or fifty percent okay wow and so did you have this perception at the start that if I if I had experienced Zoe had experienced this that other people are probably, or did your friends also tell you? How did you learn that the problem was bigger than maybe just your own experience? Yeah, I had an inkling because I, I just thought this is too weird. Mm -hmm. um, but doing it, we did it for you know eight friends, and that was really the cementation of okay, this is a problem that is repeatable, mm -hmm. um, and therefore you can have a repeatable solution for it. Too. Did you after doing a few of them? Did you actually figure out the pattern of how to do it more efficiently? Definitely figured out a script. At one point, okay. we actually had a script on our website you, you for individuals to call. You know, you call, you say, I want a coding audit. Um, they'll offer to put you on a payment plan. You say, no, that's not good enough. We need to actually review the codes. Well, what you're describing is what, you know, I, we've talked about Marshall Allen mm -hmm. offline. What you're describing is kind of what he has done from an investigative uh, point of view, right? Mm -hmm. And uncovering all these different horror stories that people have experienced. And his, his mission was sort of empower the member through education or the person to go, go, go fight it on their own. But not everybody has uh, the capacity. Mm -hmm. And what you guys, it looks like you're doing, and we're going to get into Slingshot more, but you're doing it on a group chassis. So you're yeah. doing it for employers at scale rather than just one-off ad hoc for individuals, right? So there's a way to scale this where it actually is repeatable and du duplicable as well. So when did you go from, oh, idea, I'm going to do this for my friends, to go, hold a second, there's a business here. When, when did that happen? Yeah, so I think it happened around in May. Um, we were just playing around uh, coding one weekend, and we're like, oh, we can write these rules. And then if you can make it repeatable, that's mm -hmm. like what you said, you can scale it. Um, I think one thing that's really important for us is that you can give people all the information, but people don't have time. You also had to call these billing offices between 9 a.m. and 4 p.m., which mm. is when most people are at work. Right. Um, and so people, they, you, they need a tool to be able to do this for them. Uh, it's hard to get people to go do this long. It took me about 20 hours to negotiate and correct my bill. Yeah. Um, so it's when a lot start, of you know, When you work. start going, well, what's the ROI? What, is my, what do I make per hour? Like at 20 hours, like... Should I just accept it, right? And that's, unfortunately, <laughs> yeah. that's the value proposition that a lot of people go through. It's like, well, it's 400 bucks, but I don't have time to do this, right? And right. I just can't afford to take off work to go fight 20 hours, right? So you need, you almost need a third party that's experienced in doing that. And again, probably with you guys, of course, you've, you've turned it into a machine repeatable process mm -hmm. as well. Um, so, so you go and you start realizing this is a business. What was your like, what is the setup, right? You have to do a bunch of code first, right? You wanted to turn it into software. You guys wanted right. to be a software company. So that must have been you and Pernell's background, right? You guys know how to code yourselves? Yeah, yeah okay, so okay. he was a software engineer at Google. Yeah. Um, and right. I did software engineering at Lyft and Tesla. So it was a good combination where both people are coming in. And I love having another working with another software engineer because when you get stuck, they can fill in the gaps. Mm. So it was really nice to found a company um, with someone who has that technical knowledge. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but then our, our kickstart was we applied to Y Combinator, um, which I know you've heard of, but it's, Yeah, yeah, go ahead and explain it for folks that don't know what it is. Yeah. It's an accelerator uh, program that's based in the Bay Area, um, but it's for companies who do all sorts of things, primarily software, but they also have hardware companies as well. 
And what they do is they fund you a little bit, and then they also teach you how to like start a business. So they teach you how to sell um, and just give you the support you need. You know, we're good engineers, but we've definitely been mm. new to this space mm -hmm. of learning how to present what you know in a way that people can understand and is meaningful to them. Yeah, and you, you, we were talking uh, over coffee about the sales process, mm -hmm. learning the sales process. You guys are obviously pretty data-driven, which I love. You know, you're telling me about your response uh, percentage <laughs> when you do cold emails and stuff like that, which I love. But these are all the things that you have to learn, especially in a founder-led sales team. Because mm -hmm. on one hand, you've got to build this business and do the software and hire, but also you don't have probably at this point the ability to go out and hire a bunch of salespeople to beat the street. So you got to learn how to sell what you yes. what you built as well. So how has that process been like for you learning how to go out and tell the story? Well, the biggest thing I've noticed is my original inclination is to dive so deep into medical billing and coding details because that's what I have learned so mm -hmm. much about um, over the past uh, time working on Slingshot. And so I'll be telling you about, oh, let me tell you about this global surgery code and you have an E&M during that time period. And people don't care about that as much. That's not meaningful to them. Mm -hmm. And so what you have to do is you have to tell them a story and you have to give them high level numbers. One thing that we do that I love is being able to take an employer's data from the past year, um, run it through our algorithms, and then show them the trends. So we say, you know, your top error is unbundling. And what mm -hmm. unbundling means mm -hmm. is you're using multiple codes to describe what could be um, described in a single code that's ah. cheaper. And ah. I always say it's like a hamburger and you're getting charged for the bun, the lettuce, and the tomato yep. as opposed to just a hamburger on your restaurant. That's bill. funny. Well, you're right, though. I imagine a lot of this thing, I mean, even when you get into the CPT codes, I'm like, I know what a CPT code is, but I don't know any of the CPT codes. I don't know bundling, unbundling. So you, you probably do start to lose people in the weeds of the technical jargon, right? Mm -hmm. But people would be moved by your story, right? Or moved right. by a similar experience, a case study, because they've probably likely experienced it themselves or know somebody that has. This is something that touches... It's almost like six degrees of Kevin Bacon. We, yeah. we, somebody has had a medical billing error. I remember probably when I was in college, uh, maybe right after college, I went to a doctor and like nine months later, a $400 check showed up in the mail. I'm like, what? Like they mm -hmm. sent me money back. Like I didn't even know what happened. <laughs> All I know is like, hey, we found an error in your bill and here's $400 back. And I was like, okay, that's cool. But that, those are the types of things that I'm sure every single person you talk to either know somebody that's gone through it or they've mm -hmm. gone through it themselves. So that's how you, of course, you move them to, to come around to this notion. So did you guys, is there an official sort of exit out of Y Combinator? Do you graduate or how does that process work? Well, you end up raising a round. Um, so that's how we ended our Y Combinator in September. Um, so you do it for the whole summer. Hmm. So we did graduate. Um, and so now we're on our own. But <laughs> good luck. Right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah it was a but do you feel like are they obviously outside of the funding, right? They give you the um, kind of the, the blueprint, right, if yes. you will, to go out. And, so do you felt, did you feel leaving that the, the cohort that you were prepared now to go out on your own? I did. And they okay. also give you... Um, mentors who we still message today and have meetings with to get advice about things. Uh, and the other super helpful thing is you meet a lot of different people who've done this founder path before. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so getting to talk to them and build that community. Um, I really have loved working on Slingshot because I have my Y Combinator community. So it's different founders who are going through the same process of building a business in all different industries. And then I have this broker community um, that I've met on LinkedIn. And it's all these people who are committed to the same goal. And mm -hmm. they have all these different tools in their tool belt. Um, and so getting to 
hear perspectives from both groups when I face a problem has really been interesting. Yeah, that's cool. And really, honestly, you know, you'll find that our ecosystem in this world of healthcare and health insurance is pretty, I mean, there's millions of us, but there's a lot of people, like you said, that are mission driven. Um, mm -hmm. It's not just about, hey, we're going to save some money or it's a cool new feature or something like that. It's like, no, there's a mission to actually at scale save employers money, save human beings money, reduce balance bills, bankruptcies, all those things. I mean, there's there's a real core mission that these people are motivated by. Mm -hmm. And it's fun to get into that world and align with folks that have the same philosophy as you. And I think, again, this is something that can scale and can save money at scale. So um, why don't we do this? Let's talk about real quick before we move on any further. What is Slingshot exactly? Let's, let's start there. Okay. So Slingshot is software that automatically monitors every claim that comes through uh, for an employer group. And then we find savings and overcharges both for the plan and the member. And then our case managers actually go and recoup that savings. Okay. So what that looks like is for the plan uh, and the member, we're finding errors and overcharges in medical billing. Mm -hmm. uh, and we come in post-adjudication. So there's actually no noise to the member. Um, it's not like we're denying things and they're getting a balanced bill. Yeah. Uh, it's actually already been paid out. So we're not slowing down the TPA's process whatsoever. But we're saying, you know, this modifier was incorrectly used here, and it resulted in an overcharge of $500 that was split between the employer and the member. And we go get that provider to correct it, and then we get the provider to send the money back to the plan uh, and then the first time that member hears about us is when our case manager calls them and says, hey, you know, there's a $250 check in the mail for you. Yeah. Let us know if you don't get it. Yeah. Um, and the other big way that we save money and find savings is these financial assistance policies at nonprofit hospitals. Yeah. Um, one thing that we found was that people don't know they qualify for financial assistance and nonprofit hospitals have to offer it because they're getting tax benefits and they have to provide community good. And so... These policies range from anywhere that's like 100% of the federal poverty level um, to 400% of the federal poverty level. But you level. said it was upwards to maybe $104,000, $105,000 for a family of four? Yeah, so 400% yeah. of the federal poverty level for a family of four is $120,000. 120, wow, okay. Yeah, so. Which, you know, so there are certain hospitals that even you still would qualify for assistance at that, that income level. Okay. Exactly, wow. yeah. And so what we do is we get the income from their employer and we use that as an indicator to what their household income would be. And so when we see them go to that hospital, we say, you know, confirm your household income through our portal, um, upload a picture of your W-2, and then we go ahead and apply them. And unfortunately, you can't just send their application into the abyss. You have to actually follow up with it at that yeah. hospital. And yeah. so we take care of that as well. And then what I love, too, is that, you know, if you're an individual and you're applying to financial assistance because you're just on top of it, and then three months later, you go to that same hospital, you have to apply again. Okay. okay. Um, and what we do is we save that information. And so when uh, Johnny's daughter goes to that same hospital or a different hospital three months later, you know, we have their information and they can just confirm, confirm, confirm. And so it's really low work on That's the employee's experience. So, so you got, almost have like two solutions, but obviously they work in tandem. So let's, let's start with the audit side. Let's come back to the hospital assistance, and, let's, and then let's talk about how they both work uh, collectively. So I'm an employer. Um, I, I'm interested in Slingshot, right? Do I need to be self-funded to start? You do need to be self-funded because okay. the big thing is, is that's where the return on investment comes from. Okay. Uh, we get money back based on like what's paid out. And so if you're members are only paying a small portion, then 
you know, we're saving money for Humana down the road. Gotcha. Okay. So, so I always like to say, I always ask that question and then self-funded with Spencer. Obviously it's fun when it's like the answer is no, you do have to be self-funded. That seems to be always that the initial step that needs to be taken for most of these really cool solutions. But let's talk about what it actually, what, if I'm an employer, I'm interested in using this on my plan, kind of what do I expect as an experience, right? Like what's the, the, the step one through the, the course of the year? What should I expect? Not only financially, but you know, the, the member experience, me as an employer in terms of data, what all am I getting when I yeah. partner with Slingshot? So the first thing, our big thing that we need to integrate is your data. And so we can work with a bunch of independent TPAs to get a data stream. And we typically get this in data dumps, either at one week intervals or monthly intervals. And then we also formed a partnership with NavMD, which I know you know. Shout out to Glenn, NavMD, <laughs> Joe Bush, what's up? Yeah, I love NavMD. Um, because they, you know, have been around for over a decade, and they have these existing relationships and data streams already built. Mm -hmm. And so for existing NavMD customers, we can just plug into that data stream already, and you're good to go. So what, what, is a, what does a data set look like, though? Like, what, you know, because I'm sure it's a pretty massive file, right? <laughs> like, so, so how, what are you guys getting? And then how do you turn it into something useful for, for you? Yeah. So we actually take it in any format. Okay. Um, a lot of times it just comes in a CSV file. And so we have some minimum elements required. So you have to have a claim number and you have to have the procedure code and the diagnosis code. Um, but generally with every employer group, we write a little script to put it into the format that we want. Okay. And then we run it through our algorithms. It takes about two minutes to run. Mm. And then we have the errors outputted and the reason why. Oh, even the reasoning why as well. Okay. So then, so, all right. So we, and you even do that, like, don't you do this for some employers, almost like a pre-audit or something like an example to show them what they could have missed or what they might've missed. Right? Yeah. Okay. I think when you go to an employer and you use their own data to sell to them, that's so much more meaningful because they see, you know, this, these are my employees. This well, is my tangible, demographic. Right? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. So and I'm sure you win a lot of business based on their going, Oh my gosh, look <laughs> how much is, is happening here. So, okay. So I'm an employer. Now I've, I've set up you gotten my feed from NavMD or my TPA, you found my errors, what's the next step? What do I expect to happen after that? So the next step is that we actually go and recoup the savings. Um, one thing that's in our mission is we want everything to be actionable. And so we don't ever wanna do something just part way, where if we you know, give you the results of an audit, your TPA may act on it, may not, you may act on it, you may not. Um, so we actually go and we contact the provider and we get money back um, sent to your plan, and then we'll also get money for your employees. Okay. okay. Um, and then the other thing we do is financial assistance. And so we'll be reaching out to employees who qualify, and then if they want to apply, we'll take care of that process for okay, them. Okay. So, um, so I want to dive into that world in just a second, but I do want to stay on that kind of the, the audit side. Um, so we've got this file. We now have found where the errors are. We've now, Slingshot is now reaching out to those providers kind of like a dispute resolution, right? I imagine they're all over the spectrum to, okay, yep, you're right, here's a check to, no way I'm paying you that and, and you're wrong, not me. So talk to me about that dispute resolution, how you guys handle that proactively for an employer. Yeah, so it takes roughly, um, when we contact them, you know, we've run it through our system, it takes a day for our case manager to reach out. Uh, and then it takes anywhere from two weeks to two, three months for a team, you know, it's usually a billing and coding team at a hospital, to review our suggestion. So we'll actually give them, you know, this is how you coded it. This is the way we think you should have coded it. And here is the NCCI rule or the CPT guideline mm -hmm. that explains our reasoning. 
Are um, they rel relatively objective in nature? I mean, like pretty provable. It's not like, yeah. hey, we think you kind of may be overcharged. It's, it's like there's a rule and you either didn't follow it or there was an error in the way that you adjudicated it. So like, is there a certain percentage that you expect to actually just be sort of accepted and, and repaid? So we actually, yeah, we only go after the really rule-based ones okay. um, because we don't contact the member. We don't want to get anyone's hopes up that they're going to save money and then not follow through on that. Okay. Okay. Um, and then you see about 70% recoupment rate. Uh, so because we're post-adjudication, they've already been paid. So not everyone is going to agree with your edit mm -hmm. and send money back. And mm -hmm. so it's around 70% that actually will. Um, it still seems like a pretty high success rate in my opinion. I mean, that's passing, yeah. right? If it was a, a test score, <laughs> you're passing. So, so what happens in that other 30% though? Does it sort of just get, I mean. It you, just goes away. They okay. are like, you know, we're going to keep the bill as is. We're not going to send the money back. And then nothing happens. Well, do you ever, do you see employers stepping in and going, no, huh, hold on. No, like, I'm not going to accept that. Did they start getting mission driven and fighting <laughs> as well alongside of we you? We haven't seen that. Okay. Um, I think most people are okay with this 70%. And the big reason for that is it eliminates noise for the member. Sure. Um, so you're not having the member be balanced billed because the provider's already been paid. So if they agree to the edit, then they're the ones sending money back. Um, if they don't agree, you know, their resolution's already been solved. Well, yeah, and it, since it's, it is post-adjudication or retrospective or retroactive in nature, right, the money's already, like, been taken out of the member and employer's account. So this is sort of like gravy, right? I've gotten yeah. money back. Um, but it, even, it, so it's not 70% of the claims dollars, of course, it's 70% of the time you find an error, you're able to recoup. Yes. So, yeah. you know, are you seeing, I mean, it may be too early to tell, but are you seeing sort of an average recoupment amount across the board? So typically we're seeing five to 10% in um, okay. medical plan spend and savings. And then if you think you apply that 70% of like recruitment, it's typically about we're saving about seven percent of the plan. Of the plan. Spend. I mean, that's still. I mean, that's a that's a not an insignificant amount mm -hmm. of money. But you were quick to sort of like suggest this is slightly different than the fraud, waste, and abuse. Um, so how does this differ? These are purely mostly just accidents, errors more more often than not. So mainly, it's like errors in medical bills where it's very objective and we can go recoup uh -huh. the money and say, here's the rule. Uh, we also do look for cases of abuse. So we have machine learning algorithms set up. And as we work with an employer, we get more and more data in, and then we can turn those on to be actionable. So okay, one so thing there, that's cool. There's a pattern, right? You right. a pattern of behavior, right? And so, so then you trigger that for that employer, maybe say, hey, your people are going to this particular facility. We've noticed a pattern. Maybe you want to steer members away, or I don't know. I don't know if you get into the realm of like uh, notifying somebody that this this is a you know an abusive location or a provider where maybe they need to be brought to the <laughs> attention of authorities. I don't know if we get that far, but um, you know, really, what what I'm I'm looking at is the fact that you can just simply say, here are the errors. Somebody's actually looking at it and not just getting it uh, slipping through the cracks. And you're finding money that goes mm -hmm. back into to members' pockets. And you mentioned the first time that people actually uh, become aware of you often on the plan is when they get a check back. And so talk about a first impression, you know, like you probably have a high net promoter score because of that, because <laughs> you're sending people money back. So that's the, that's the um, kind of the, the billing and the error side. We did talk about how this differs from that forensic audit, which I think I kind of brought up to the other mm -hmm. day, right? Like that's a really deep, detailed 
all these documentations. They're scrubbing things. Right. They're like, looking at medical records. Yeah, yeah. We actually don't even look at medical records. You don't. Okay. It's just on the actual claim. Was it billed correctly? Okay. Um, and do we see a pattern that matches, right? Like if you have a provider who works in the ER and every case they see is a level five severity, well, that doesn't match up to what we know people go to the ER for. Yeah, yeah. Um, you're going to expect to see a lot more level threes, which is the median level. Well, I like that you can just layer this on in a really objective way. Like you said, you get that file and you guys are turning it around in a couple minutes to take it to run. Now you have a subset of claims that you know you can go after. You get case managers on it. Mm -hmm. So typically, like what is that experience from time that you get the file to most of those claims have been that 70%. You said that's upwards of two, three months sometimes, depending on the provider pushback and stuff like that. Yeah. So most of the time is taken on the provider side to review our edit. Um, I mean, billing teams, I think, are inundated with having to bill more mm -hmm. um, new claims and also having to review things. And so they're working as hard as they can to get that back, hopefully. Um, but it does take anywhere from like a couple weeks to a couple months. Well, not to mention, there's not like they're thrilled to go send a bunch of no. money back either. <laughs> yeah, I'm, like, I'm not going to jump on that. I'm going to probably drag my feet. But the point is, is you are working towards an obvious conclusion, which is yes. ultimately about 70% of these claims will see some money come back, right? And a 7% yeah. on average spend, which I like numbers. So I always remember the numbers in there. But it's to me, that's a tangible thing. And it seems like a no-brainer to do. Mm -hmm. um, so as you're going out and telling the story with employers and in brokers, like what sort of responses are you getting? to this. I mean, it seemed to me on the surface, it seems really exciting and obvious to do, but of course, what, what are some of the things that people question and ask you as you're going through this process? Yeah, it's generally, you've had really positive responses. I think people really like that you're not contacting the member unless you're able to help them and you have already helped them essentially. Because mm -hmm. um, people get, you know, their hopes up and then they get disappointed if you know that you didn't, weren't able to recover their money. Um, so that's a big benefit. And then I think the other thing that we've heard positive feedback on is that we're helping the plan and the member. And so we're not just trying to reduce dollars spent by the employer, but we're also looking out for individuals. Yeah, that's very cool. It's again, back to the idea of a mission, uh, a mm -hmm. purpose of what you're doing. Um, when can I do this during the year? Does this have to be a renewal? Can I literally do it at any point during the year? Yeah, you literally can do it at any point. Um, if you have access to your data, which everyone who self-funds should definitely fight to have access for their data yeah. um, and make sure that they work with partners who value that. Yeah. And you said, you told me you can look back like a year or something like that. So why, what is that year? Why is the year typically the cutoff of how far back I can look? So it varies state by state of how long a claim can be you know, paid out and then you can go try to uh, recoup it and challenge it. Um, so we do like change based on the state we're in. Ah. Um, but generally it's a year. And the other reason is, is after a year, we find a lot less success with getting a bill changed. Yeah. Um, yeah. The most success always comes when you're in real time, which is why mm -hmm. we continuously audit throughout the year. Oh, you do? I'm glad week. you brought that up. Okay. Yeah. So I don't just pay for a retroactive audit. I also have now ongoing support with Slingshot throughout the year. So tell me the difference of looking backwards and catching stuff versus continually looking and triaging them. So when we look backwards, we can catch things uh, but you'll have a harder time, you know, going to a hospital and saying, you know, this claim that you uh, filed and were paid for seven months ago, well, there was actually a mistake in it um, and we need you to correct it. Whereas if it was recently adjudicated and we're getting claims as frequently as once a week, we can go and say, hey, you just got paid for this bill, but take a look. You know, this is against the CPT guidelines um, and you should correct it. And also 
you know, let your coding team know so they don't make this mistake in the future. Mm-hmm, yeah. Let them know. We'll see how we'll fast see they how get it on goes, that adjustment, but right? That's but the you dream. said, like, there, there is a difference, right, in the pre-adjudication where there is the potential there for more disruption, right? Because, mm-hmm. hey, I'm actually telling somebody on the front end maybe they can't go do this or there was an overcharge or maybe you get a denial from the provider now that you're disputing it. So how does this differ from that, which is, again, that's the front end side versus the ongoing or back end, which you're doing mostly? Yeah, so the front end, you also run the risk of, you know, when you have a denial or the plan is taking a long time to pay something out, that the member gets a balanced bill. Uh, And generally, that has that member go to their HR team and raise questions, and it just creates a lot of noise, not to mention stress on that individual who now has a $10,000 bill um, that they're worried about paying or if their insurance is going to cover. Mm -hmm. And so by being post-adjudication, you know, the provider already has their money. We're asking them to correct something uh, based on a standard uh, across the country of how you should bill. And if they agree to it, then we're resolving it as opposed to uh, withholding money and then creating a fight up front. Yeah. Well, so like, you know, I get this question sometimes with our RFP software. A lot of people look at it and go, why wasn't this done 10 years ago? Or why isn't it done 20 years? Some of it, there wasn't a will at that time. Some of it is just really recognizing a problem and putting money in and solving it. But like, why do you feel like this hasn't proliferated as fast as it probably should have? Because it seems like the, the ability to do this was probably there. Just maybe the will was lacking or, or what? I think the biggest thing is that people didn't have access to their claims uh, until recently. So you have this, you have the CAA, which says, you know, employers have a fiduciary duty to make sure that their plan is doing the right thing by its members. And so people can access their claims now. And so then they can double check, you know, how is this billing going? How is uh, Humana adjudicating this claim? How is Maritane doing it? And so that's huge. Because uh, if you don't have data, then there's no way you can do anything mm-hmm. actionable with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I think the other thing is that you have to be willing to do it all. So you have to be able to do the audit and then also be willing to go do the fighting yeah. on behalf of someone yeah. and get that money back. Well, that's that's really the special sauce, right? Because mm-hmm. it's like you could set up an algorithm to catch these things, but it's like, and then what, right? <laughs> if you don't actually take action to follow up, it's not like... You can just go send a, a document to a provider and yeah, yep, yeah, checks in the mail. Like somebody is going to, th- this is always the thing like, will AI replace us? Uh, I don't know. Will it augment us? Yes. But I still think that the human intelligence, the decision-making process, negotiating, the rapport you build, all those things have to be involved in order mm-hmm. to actually make this thing work. Um, so I want to go back before we kind of go big picture in your moonshot. I want to talk about your moonshot, but um the, the uh, other side of this, which is the equation you talked about, uh, you know, the poverty level or up to 400% of the poverty level, helping people actually navigate the system. And I guess, so how, I, I explain that rule to me because I don't know if I exactly understand it. If I qualify as a family to four to go to a particular um, hospital, what, what does that mean? I don't have any out of pocket? What, what, tell me that. Yeah. Uh, I really don't understand that rule, honestly. So nonprofit hospitals are required by law to provide a community good. And so they do this in form of financial assistance policies. Um, What that means is if you go to that nonprofit hospital um, for emergency care, and then they'll also, most of their providers in that hospital will be part of this financial assistance policy. You always have a couple providers who are not included in it for some reason. Uh, But you, they'll have a guideline and it'll cover your member portion. So it's never gonna cover the plans portion. The employer is always gonna have to pay um, what they owe. They're always gonna collect fully from that. 
but it's saying you as a member, um, you as an individual, you know, your household income is, let's say, under $120,000 for a family of four. Our financial assistance policy, we give full 100% care for free of charge okay. if you're under that limit. And so they'll actually cover the... The hospital just writes that portion off, I guess. Yeah, okay. and so... Uh, when hospitals are doing their financial assistance, they typically have people who are in bad debt and they were never going to collect from in the first place or they just never expected to see that money come through. And then they have the financial assistance piece where they forgive it. And so to the hospital, it's all the same. They're giving out free care mm -hmm. to people. So why, why uh, maybe I'll have to ask you to theorize a little bit. Why is this not more commonly known, um, not only just at the member level, but even at the employer level, that this is a thing, this is a, uh, a program that people can take advantage of. Why do you think that is? I think the main one is that, uh, you know, I, I don't know why hospitals don't uh, advertise it more. I think they should, right? Because it was going to be in, it had a chance of being in bad debt. Um, my guess is that they don't want people to take mm -hmm. full advantage of it. Um, there's people who are on the border. They're hoping well, we'll just say a pay large it. percentage of America probably qualifies at least up to that 400% level if that hospital allows for that, right? So yeah. then you're, you're theoretically almost attracting a population, I would suspect, to come to your hospital because of that reason, right? Um, so, so it's not really well advertised. Employers don't know that well about this. Members obviously don't know much about it. You guys help educate them. You also find through the census, right? You find, or mm -hmm. I guess you said it's a survey where people answer the question about We income. just get it straight from their employer. You get it like from the their employer. income. Yeah, yeah. Okay. okay. And then we'll ask them to confirm their So you income. sort of flag, you confirm. Now, how does the one-two punch work? So the audit side, as well as this hospital qualification side, how do you, if I'm a member that benefits from both, how does that, how does that work? So one thing we're actually looking into doing is helping people navigate to care that makes sense for them. Mm. So if you're gonna go to the hospital anyway, and these hospitals will have different levels for financial assistance and even in the same region. So you'll have them vary as much as like 100% for the federal property limit. One hospital is so like $30,000 at one hospital and $120,000 at one other hospital. Okay. So it makes sense to say, hey, you know, you do qualify at hospital B. Let's send Maybe you, you there. Maybe you should go to hospital B. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, that makes sense. So, so that's kind of a little bit of a future state thing, though, the kind of care navigation or coordination yeah. side. But it seems like a relatively easy thing to be able to trigger. Do you qualify for assistance? If so, which hospital has the right threshold to, to steer you to? You don't tell them to go there. You don't make recommendations. No. You simply give them information to make a better right. choice. Right? Well, and because people don't have time to go dig through these financial assistance policies and figure out which ones they do qualify for and which ones they don't. Uh, and then every time they go to the hospital, they have to apply. And so, you know, if they go to the hospital and then their son goes to the hospital four months later, we've saved all that information. So all they're having to do is confirm that nothing has changed um, in terms of their financial situation, and we'll apply them. Another thing is you can't just send the application into the abyss. You do have to call you the hospital check. and check up on it. Yeah, um, but so theoretically, even if the member qualifies, so their out-of-pocket portion is written off, but I might I'd still catch uh, an error in the billing that the employer paid, right? So you have yeah. the potential to save money on, on both sides of the equation, which uh, obviously that's pretty cool. That's theor Theoretically, that's pretty cool. Obviously, over time, you'll gather the data mm -hmm. to be able to determine what percentage of the time both of those things, the things happen. But I want to zoom out now big picture as we sort of work towards the close of the podcast. You told me your moonshot vision. And I, I just had heard somebody say, use the term moonshot at – 
you powered last week, as a matter of fact. Nice. And so I like this idea, this the grand vision over the long term of what we're going to accomplish. So what is your moonshot vision for slingshot? Okay, so my moonshot vision, when we were first starting out, we were saving our friends on average 30% off of their medical bills. And so that's my goal of... For the U.S. consumer, let's lower their costs by 30% okay. um, in healthcare. And so that's going to be a lot of work because yes. fraud, waste, and abuse accounts for a little bit of that. Um, and then you're going to have other things come into play like care navigation. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I'm excited to try and work for it for the next like 30 years, 40 years. We'll see how it goes. But so even if it's not 30%, right? Even if it's 20% or 10%. I mean, I think our industry is somewhere in the ballpark of like $4 trillion, the healthcare industry. So do the math, right? The $400 billion, maybe a trillion at stake, depending on where we are in that spectrum. So it's not like you're just saving $500,000. Right? This is something that would move the needle. I think it will move the needle in conjunction, like you said, with a lot of other things, mm -hmm. but it suggests the amount of money that's probably built into that uh, portion of the GDP that's unnecessary, erroneous, abusive, mm -hmm. whatever terms you want to use. And so we're all working together to try to find it and yeah. try to, so it's not like we're finding it and clawing it back and putting it in some other employer's pocket necessarily. You're finding it and putting back in Ameri average Americans pockets, right? right? So we should see lower premiums, lower out-of-pocket expenses, mm -hmm. reduce you know, pricing for services. All of these things could happen as a result. So how do we get there, Zoe, is the big <laughs> question. How, how do we get to that point, you think? Yeah, I think it starts with transparency. I think that's what we've seen in the past two years with the price transparency laws, with CAA, people having access to their own data. Um, and transparency is part one, right? Because if it's not actionable, you know, you can know there's a problem, but if you have no way to fix it or no tools to use to fix it, mm -hmm. then it doesn't really mean anything that you know there's an issue. Um, so I think we're starting to get part one with the transparency piece. Uh, and now we need people to go build tools, um, whether that be something like Slingshot where we're auditing for errors uh, or it's something where you're doing a direct contracting mm -hmm. um, vendor. But we need these people to go build tools so that way consumers, employers can use these tools. Well, the tools have to be simple to use. Mm -hmm. They have to coordinate with other tools that exist as well, <laughs> right? You unbundle a self-funded group. There's all these different uh, you know, solution providers that may or may not work together well right. or even know how to talk to each other, right? So some of the rub is in being able to just make it simplified again yeah. once you get best in class vendors uh, participating. So I, I want to ask you uh, one other thing, and then we'll go into the, the the wrapping up the show. But like, you told me your big picture of your moonshot, but what about healthcare? Like, I know you're relatively new to this industry, and you didn't necessarily anticipate getting into this industry. Obviously, you're working at, at uh, Tesla and Lyft beforehand. So mm -hmm. I imagine you didn't suspect <laughs> this was going to be the case uh, when you were looking forward at your career. But what do you think, you know, seeing uh, what you know today, what do you think in the next few years we should expect on the horizon? Transparency, you know, things like that. I'd love to hear your, just your perspective. Yeah, I think we're going to continue with transparency, and that's going to really bring a lot of innovators to the table um, because they're going to have data they can use to solve different problems. Okay. Um, and then what that looks like from an individual is that one huge barrier to care is cost and then not knowing what to do. Um, and so I think we're going to see hopefully costs come down for people so that people aren't afraid to go to their primary care physician. And then we're going to see different solutions, whether it's, you know, telehealth or 
um, direct primary care so that people know where to go. Okay. Yeah, I love that. And so let's let's simplify the kind of the call to action at the end. I'm a insurance broker. Uh, listening to this, maybe I'm an employer who has a, a broker. Maybe often uh, times I know you're looking to partner with TPAs, but what would be steps in order to go ahead and get something like Slingshot in place? Yeah, I think one is make sure you have access to your data. Uh, so you need your claims data to know what your plan's spending and how you're spending it. And then two is to run an audit. Um, yeah. So to figure out, you know, do I have errors in my claims, which most likely you do. Um, and then to get something like Slingshot, you know, we plug in and so we're continuously. What if I'm a, even back. if I'm a producer and I'm like, I've got an employer in mind. I know we were talking about this the other day and I've heard some noise. If I wanted to come to Slingshot and just have one of those proactive audits run, like what, what would they yeah. need to give you? Just that TPA uh, file, the claims file or what? Really, it's just a claims file. Okay. And then we'll run it through our um, algorithms and give it back to you and show you what you could have saved. Uh, and then to get Slingshot up and running, you know, we've already gotten the data. Yeah. Um, so we have that part set up. Just so it's contract really, after that? Just yeah. a contract. Yeah. I love it. And obviously a little exchange of money. You guys aren't working <laughs> for free, but we yeah. don't need to cover like what exactly that is. But okay. So uh, closing thoughts, anything you want to leave the audience with, contact information, you name it, just feel free. The, the floor is yours. Well, I would just say as, you know, an original outsider to this industry, I've been really inspired meeting everyone who is working toward this goal of lowering the cost for employers and consumers. Um, so that's really something that's been inspiring to me. Uh, and I always enjoy like talking to you and talking to other people who have that same goal. Well, I would say you are inspiring to me because, uh, you know, getting into this industry accidentally, you, you're still in your 20s, you told me. And the fact that you guys have started a company, already gotten through Y Combinator and out and up and running. To me, that's inspirational as well because you you see a problem. You and, and Pranell obviously partnered together to go solve this problem. Uh, that's impressive to me. So uh, kudos to you, and I can't wait to see what you guys do in the future. Well, thanks. My pleasure. And we did a podcast. Woohoo! Yay! Take a breath. Easy.